Before we read God's holy, inerrant, infallible word, let us turn to him in prayer. Let's pray together. Teach us your way, O Lord, and lead us on a level path. Teach us, O Lord, to follow your decrees. Then we will keep them to the end. Give us understanding and we will keep your law and obey it with all of our hearts. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. As we continue to reflect on the fourth commandment this morning, we are looking at the gospel according to Luke chapter 13 verses 10 through 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. It is written. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, that is Jesus. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over, could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We laid out a foundation for what the Sabbath is and why we are called to observe it this past Sunday, namely that it is rooted in creation, that it is rooted in redemption. And it points forward to and gives a foretaste of the eternal rest that we have received in Jesus Christ by his salvific work on the cross. This morning, we are going to get to the hard work of building a structure on this foundation. Practically speaking, we need to understand what obeying the Sabbath commandment should look like. Now, when we look at the fourth commandment, we can really only find a few prescriptions for our observation for this day, right? First, we are not to work, but are to rest on this day. And second, we are to keep this day holy. The obvious questions, therefore, are what classifies as work? What type of rest is called for? And what sort of practices are in accordance with this day being set apart unto the Lord as holy? These are the very same questions that were asked by the Jewish people who receive this commandment in the generations that follow. And in response, they created 39 categories of work. 
which included thousands of very specific, very detailed laws about what one could or could not do on the Sabbath. In other words, they built a really high wall around this this commandment in order not to violate it. But we see in the gospel, Jesus revealing that in many ways they had missed the mark. The Sabbath observation became more about following rules than what God truly intended for this day. It became a burden rather than a joy. As scripture makes clear though, in places like Hosea 6, God desires steadfast love and not sacrifice. Knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God does not want heartless ritual. He wants us to respond to him in faith and in love. And even though Jesus rebuked the religious leader concerning their, their Sabbath practices, notice what he does not do. In his refocusing of the Sabbath in the gospel accounts, Jesus does not dismiss the Sabbath as simply a ceremonial law that is abolished in the new covenant. In fact, obeying the Sabbath commandment is assumed in the New Testament. We see Jesus observing the Sabbath throughout the gospel accounts. We also see this in his disciples. For instance, after the crucifixion, Jesus was laid in the tomb and his disciples waited to prepare his body because it was a Sabbath. Luke 23, 56 states, on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. There isn't any evidence then that God has released us from the our our obligation to obey the fourth commandment in our freedom in Christ. The question isn't whether or not we should obey the commandment. Rather, the question is, how are we to obey the commandment? And scripture helps us to answer this question, as I hope we will see. But discerning from scripture what our Sabbath observations should be today can be a difficult thing especially since the Sabbath for the Jewish people was from sunset to sunset, Friday evening to Saturday evening. Very early Jewish Christians seemed to continue to honor this tradition, but the church clearly gathered on the first day of the week, Sunday, to worship together as the Lord's Day, celebrating this day as a remembrance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and anticipating the coming of his kingdom in its fullness. And I think a very strong argument can be presented that the seventh day Sabbath observation is transferred to the first day, Sunday, as a Christian Sabbath, as a result of Jesus's fulfillment of the fourth commandment. So I say all of that now to say that we want to be careful, especially careful not to prescribe what Scripture has not. We aren't trying to add human laws to God's law. Therefore, what I want to do this morning is to provide biblical principles for answering these questions for yourselves. Further, I want us to focus on what we are to do on the Sabbath rather than spending a lot of time on what we are not to do on the Sabbath. When we begin to reduce the Sabbath to what we can't do, we're missing the point of the Sabbath. What we want to discern isn't what we should not be doing then, but what we have been freed to do by laying aside our normal activities and devoting ourselves entirely to the Lord on this day. So I have seven 
biblical principles to guide our thinking about our Sabbath practices. A good biblical number for you. So if you're taking notes, principle number one, we are to take the Sabbath commandment with all seriousness. We are to take the Sabbath commandment with all seriousness. The Sabbath commandment is not to be taken lightly. It is not a suggestion. We see in the Old Testament that there were very serious consequences for those who disobeyed, just as there were for all of the commandments. We look to Exodus 31, 12 through 15. God gave Moses the following instruction for Israel. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Twice in just four verses... It is stated that the civil punishment for violating the Sabbath is death. And Nehemiah states that the Lord poured out his wrath on the people of Israel and sent them into exile because of their violation of the Sabbath commandment. As he watches them fall back into practices that violate the Sabbath, the scripture says, Then I, Nehemiah, confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. I think this is why we see in the New Testament such a serious reaction to Jesus by the religious leaders who believe he is violating the Sabbath commandment. For instance, in Matthew 12, where Jesus heals a man with a withered hand, Scripture says that the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Again, he has done something they believe was punishable by death. Now, obviously, there is no longer a civil punishment for violating the Sabbath commandment. But the point is, it is a sin. And we know that according to God's word in Romans 6, that the wages of sin is death. It's something that is displeasing to God and deserves his wrath. Therefore, this commandment should be kept with the same seriousness as the other nine. So we should ask ourselves if our Sabbath practices recognize the seriousness of this commandment, or do they reveal that we marginalize the importance of obeying this commandment as God's law? But we also learn in Exodus 31 some other reasons why the Sabbath is to be kept. And so principle number two, the Sabbath is meant to be a sign of the people of God. The Sabbath is meant to be a sign of the people of God. The Lord says in Exodus 31 that it is a sign between me and you. The Sabbath is a sign of God's grace for his people. But it is also a means by which the world recognizes God's people as his people. It's a distinctive practice of God's people. I think this is another one of the reasons why people react so strongly against Jesus in the Gospels when 
he does something that they view as breaking the Sabbath, like in Luke 13. The ruler of the synagogue is said to be indignant in their context of being in a Roman-occupied Israel. Their identity as God's people was very important, and this was a marker of their identity. And so although Jesus shows that their practices are misguided, this principle still applies. How much more should we then, as God's redeemed people in Jesus Christ, who live as aliens in this world, observe this day as a way of not only enjoying God's grace, but showing the world our faith in Jesus Christ and the rest that we enjoy because of the work he has done for us on the cross. But this means that our Sabbath observation is going to set us apart from the rest of the world. It's a public witness. And we should be thinking about this when we consider our Sabbath practices. If our Sabbath looks just like our non-Christian friends, then something is very wrong. So we should ask ourselves if our Sabbath practices clearly reveal us to be people who belong to the Lord, who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, and who therefore joyfully obey his commandments and seek his presence. Further, this day was revealed in Exodus 31 to be a day that was set apart as sacred in order that the people of God might be sanctified. The Puritan Thomas Watson stated that the Sabbath promotes holiness in us. The business of weekdays makes us forgetful of God in our souls. The Sabbath brings him back to our remembrance. And Watson continues, when the falling dust of the world has clogged the wheels of our affections that they can scarce move towards God, the Sabbath comes and oils the wheels of our affections and they move swiftly on. God has appointed the Sabbath for this end. And so this leads us to our third principle, principle number three. The Sabbath is a day of service to the Lord in acts of spiritual devotion. The Sabbath is a day of service to the Lord in acts of spiritual devotion. This means that worship, prayer, fasting, Christian fellowship, the reading and studying of God's word, etc., should be hallmarks and priorities of this day. These disciplines all turn our affections to the Lord and honor him as God. These are all ways in which God has instructed us in his word to offer and devote ourselves to him that he might be glorified and that we might be sanctified. For they are all practices in which we are brought into his holy presence and through which he reveals himself to us. These are the means by which God feeds and nourishes our souls. It shouldn't surprise us then that we see these things in Jesus' own practices for the Sabbath day during his earthly life and ministry. In verse 10 of Luke 13, we read, Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Almost every time the Sabbath is mentioned in the Gospels, Jesus is seen in the synagogue or the temple. He's worshiping with the people of God. They are reading scripture together and praying. And Jesus used this day in particular to teach. We also see this continued in the lives of Jesus' disciples after his ascension. Dozens of times in Acts, the Sabbath is mentioned. And what are the disciples doing on this day? Very predictably, they are in the synagogue. 
They are enjoying fellowship and reading and preaching and teaching God's word. They are proclaiming Christ to God's gathered people. And when they can't find a synagogue, they go to where they think God's people might be gathering to pray and worship. For instance, in Acts 16, when Paul and Silas are in Philippi, it states, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. This is where Lydia is converted to Christ. But we also see them coming together for worship and study and fellowship on the Lord's Day, where we begin to see this shift in Christian practice concerning the Sabbath. In Acts 20, for instance, it recounts the story of the church in Troas being gathered together and breaking bread, and Paul is there preaching and teaching on the first day. It reveals to us the practice of the church to assemble together on this day, understanding that it has been sanctified by Jesus in his resurrection. That this day was a regular day of Christian worship is backed up in places like 1 Corinthians 16, where Paul gives instructions about the collection for the saints. When is it to be done? On the first day, the Lord's day. Why? Well, probably because this is when the church was gathered together and an offering was received as an act of worship. And when the Apostle John receives the revelation of Jesus Christ on the island of Patmos, he reports that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He was worshiping God on the Lord's day, even when he was isolated from God's people while in prison. It makes sense, doesn't it, that the early church does this? For the Lord's Day was not just recognized as the beginning of a new week, but is recognized as a new beginning. As one scholar notes, this was because the resurrection of Christ was the first fruits of the final resurrection and restoration of all things. It's Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15. On the Lord's Day, our worship is a commemoration of Christ's accomplished work and triumphant resurrection and an anticipation of the day of recreation, when the Lord shall make all things new. But it is also a participation in the age to come already in this age. As Paul says, upon us, the end of the ages has come. And so it makes sense for us to continue this practice as our day of Sabbath rest. And because our gathering together with fellow believers for worship around the word of God is so important on this day, we find the writer of Hebrews stating that we should consider how to stir up one another in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Assembling together is an incredibly important Sabbath practice for us that should not be neglected. As J.C. Ryle encouraged, never be absent from God's house on Sundays without good reason. Never to miss the Lord's Supper when, it, when administered in our own congregation. Never to let our place be empty when the means of grace are going on. This is one way to be a growing and prosperous Christian. The very sermon that we needlessly miss may contain a precious word in season for our souls. 
The very assembly for prayer and praise from which we stay away may be the very gathering that would have cheered and established and quickened our hearts. Therefore, wherever we are in the world on the Lord's day, on Sunday, we should seek to find a way to assemble with God's people in worship. But we should not just think that our duty is met simply by coming together for just an hour or two. Scripture indicates that the whole day should be set apart for the worship and adoration of God. Even when we leave the assembly of God's people, this day can be filled with pursuing God, whether it be a continued reflection on his word read and preached in worship. Prayer, fasting, Christian reading, singing of hymns, enjoyment of his creation in a way that helps us to give thanks for his goodness. There are countless ways for us to make God the center of our Sabbath. Therefore, we should ask ourselves, if our Sabbath practices honor God and promote holiness in us by way of public and private worship, prayer, the reading of scripture, Christian fellowship, and any other spiritual discipline, are these our priorities on this day? Or does the intentional devotion to God get neglected because of our own personal agenda, whether that be for business or leisure? Principle number four, the Sabbath is a day of service to the Lord in acts of mercy and compassion to others. The Sabbath is a day of service to the Lord in acts of mercy and compassion to others. The Gospels are intent to reveal this to us in the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus had come, as he says at the beginning of his ministry, to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when we look at the gospel accounts of Jesus' activity on the Sabbath, it matches this mission statement. His work was especially about setting people free, free on the Sabbath, free from disease, free from spiritual bondage, free from anxiety and pain and loneliness. We see this in Luke 13, don't we? A woman is freed from her disability. She is freed from being bound by Satan, as Scripture says in verse 16. Jesus' point here in this Sabbath miracle is not only to fulfill his mission as the promised Savior, but to reveal God's intention for the Sabbath by pointing to the hypocrisy of the religious leaders who would free their animals to go get that which gives life on the Sabbath, but would not allow the same for people. He wants to point to the reality of the life and freedom we have in God. And this is to be particularly enjoyed and experienced on the Sabbath. Again, remember the Sabbath was meant for our benefit. Following in the way of Jesus, we too are to identify ways that we are called to be merciful and compassionate to those in need that they too might experience the freedom and life-giving nature of the Sabbath granted to us by the Lord of the Sabbath. And the freedom from ordinary responsibilities. We're given time to pray, to write letters to, to visit shut-ins and those who are in the hospital. We can serve at a local shelter. We can cook a meal for a family who is grieving. 
I knew a girl who makes knit caps for babies in the NICU. These are all wonderful Sabbath practices. And I will confess that in this area, I could be doing much, much better. How about you? In what ways are your Sabbath practices outward focus, seeking to offer mercy and compassion to those in need? And with this principle in mind that the Sabbath calls us to think about others on this day, we get to principle number five. The Sabbath commandment calls us to ensure rest, not just for ourselves, but for others as well. The Sabbath commandment calls us to ensure rest, not just for ourselves, but for others as well. If we look at the Sabbath commandment in Exodus and Deuteronomy, we find that it not only calls us to rest, but also to allow others to rest. In Exodus, the fourth commandment states, on it you shall not do any work, you or... And then it gives a whole list of people and animals that you are not to make do any work. The same is true in Deuteronomy. Although in Deuteronomy, as we said last week, the reason for the commandment has the Exodus in mind. Therefore, because God has so graciously delivered you from bondage to relentless labor in the land of Egypt, you are not to do to others what your Egyptian oppressors did to you. So the Sabbath calls us to not only take the time to remember and give thanks for what God has done for us, but also to point to him in our lives by imitating him by way of giving others the freedom to rest from their labors. Now, I realize the difficulty in interpreting this for our cultural context outside of our immediate families. We live in a post-Christian nation. We no longer have laws limiting commerce, for instance, on the day that we honor as a Sabbath which would seem to be the most obvious application for us. It's easy then for us to justify going to the grocery store, for instance. We could say, well, the cashier might only work three days a week. We aren't forcing them to work on the Sabbath because they have the opportunity to take a Sabbath on another day, and their work in the afternoon allows them to worship in the morning. Nor may they even be Christians who wish to worship. This could also apply to people we hire to work around our homes. I I want to caution you, though, dearly beloved, without being legalistic about it, that we should be very, very careful with this sort of logic. It is not so easily justified when we look at Scripture, which, if nothing else, seems to prohibit commerce on the Sabbath. It takes our affection off the Lord. But even beyond this, we need to be intentional about our Sabbath practices and be careful that we aren't putting anyone in a situation, Christian or not, that they would not have a full day to devote to the Lord. And while we're thinking about the grocery store on the Sabbath, this leads us to principle number six. The Sabbath requires preparation. The Sabbath requires preparation. The ruler of the synagogue says in response to Jesus healing the woman, there are six days in which to work, that work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Now we know how Jesus responded to this remark, but Jesus's response was more about the religious leader's wrong understanding of what was truly permissible on the Sabbath day, namely here an act of mercy. But the remark 
about our need to get our ordinary work done is itself not out of line with the fourth commandment. Jesus was not objecting here to this truth. Remember that the people of God were told in Exodus 16 to collect extra manna the day before the Sabbath in order that they might rest on the Sabbath. The principle here is that if we do not prepare for the Sabbath by getting our ordinary tasks done ahead of time, then we cannot properly set this day apart under the Lord. We cannot focus on God entirely because we become distracted with worldly things. We cannot rest in him because we are busied by trying to sustain ourselves. This means that we have to be mindful of what needs to be done and get it done before the Sabbath day. And if this is to be a day set apart under the Lord, this is not a day of work, whether that work be one that earns us money or keeps our households operational, which can be even more stressful than the work we get paid to do. So it might mean for us that we need a paradigm shift for how we think about our Saturdays and Sundays. The world tells us that these are our days, that this is our weekend, so that we might look at these days through the lens of the world and save everything for Sunday afternoon and evening to get ready for the week ahead, right? If we're doing this, we are wrongly looking at our week. This isn't a biblical view of the week. Sunday is, remember, not the end of last week, but the first day of a new week. And if we are to begin our day rightly, then we must honor this day appropriately. Therefore, preparation for the week ahead needs to happen at the end of the week, Friday and Saturday, if we are to rest from our ordinary duties and devote the day fully to the Lord. So let me encourage you to think about what this means. This means that we shouldn't wait until Sunday afternoon to realize that we need to do all of our grocery shopping for the week ahead, or that we need to do all of our laundry, or mow our grass, or get our kids ready for school. But not only this, we need to begin preparing our hearts for the Sabbath by Saturday evening. We send out a bulletin to you. Go ahead and read the scripture passage and pray over it. If it's a communion Sunday, ensure that you will be coming in a worthy manner to the Lord's table, hungry for God. Seek forgiveness and reconciliation where it's needed. Be thinking about what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, that you might come with a thankful heart. And if you are away from home, make accommodations to observe the Sabbath wherever you are. And one way that we do this is to spend time seeking out a gospel-believing, gospel-preaching congregation to worship with. It's much easier now that we have the internet. But setting the Sabbath apart as holy means that we are entering this day intentionally well-prepared. And finally, principle seven, and this is brief, the Sabbath is not only to be approached with all seriousness, which is where we began this morning, it is to be observed with serious joy. It is to be observed with serious joy. Isaiah 58 says, call the Sabbath a delight. If we approach this day as simply a duty to be obeyed, we will probably approach it with dread. It won't be anticipated with delight, but will be seen as a burden. This is not what Jesus demonstrates for us. This is not what the practices of the early church reveal. This is a day to enjoy the freedom we have received in Christ, as I've said. 
It's a day to celebrate who God is and what he has done for us, to remember that he has made us wonderfully and fearfully, that he cares for us, that he has redeemed us in Jesus Christ even while we were yet sinners, and that he has gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us in his eternal rest. Our Sabbath practices should reflect our joy in these truths. So what sort of celebratory practices can we observe then on the Sabbath? Perhaps you share a big meal together as a family. Perhaps you as a family can enjoy time together singing praise to God. Sometimes at my house, we like to turn the music up and have a little dance party. These are appropriate Lord's Day celebrations. Enjoy the rest that you have in Jesus Christ. And may God's kindness to us in Christ that we experience through our Sabbath practices lead us to greater repentance, deeper intimacy with him, and more faithful obedience with the whole of our lives. And may God receive all the glory. Amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we once again give you all thanks and praise for the gift of the Sabbath, for the gift of a weekly day of rest, a day that we can set aside the burdens of this life and we can come to you and we can find help and grace. We can delight in your holy presence that we can enjoy the fellowship of the saints. Lord, that we can offer up to you prayer and praise. Lord, help us to discern rightly how we are to make use of our time on this day. Lord, may it be glorifying to you, for we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now let us stand together in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Say what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Dearly beloved, in whom do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life